This is the Angry GM, and you probably weren't expecting to hear from me today, but you are. Here is what happened. I went to see the D&D Honor Among Thieves film the other night with uh, the tiny GM and walked out miserable and furious and wasn't going to say anything to anyone because a lot of people actually enjoyed the film. Uh, and I, I'm going to have to stop putting film in air quotes, but a lot of people enjoyed the film and I didn't want to be that guy who just shits on the things people like. I do that enough with a lot of different things and I really don't want that to become my reputation. Okay. But at the same time, I was very deeply upset about it um, for some very specific reasons. And people did ask me my opinion, and I kind of tried to hedge. I said, I don't want to really talk about it. I just hated it. And, you, I, you know, I wouldn't recommend anybody go see it. And I certainly wouldn't show it to my son or daughter uh, if I, you know, when, when, not if, when I have a son and or daughter. Um, and so people, that just made people more curious. And then I sort of lost my temper about it and kind of went into a rant and yada, yada, yada. So now I have finally agreed to just, you know what? I am going to voice my opinions for what they're worth. And you're welcome to take them or leave them or whatever. Okay, and that's what this live chat is. So I've got a couple of people hanging out listening to me. I am going to have a Q&A thing, maybe. It depends on how all this goes. Uh, I have written some notes in advance. So I have bullet points to get through. And I'm not going to do a lot of interacting with the chat until I give my speech. It's going to be a long one. Um, and I don't even know how long precisely this is going to go on. It's going to go on for some time. I will tell you that much. Okay. First things first, this is going to come in two parts. There's the fun part, and then there's the angry part. Okay. In the fun part, I'm going to pick apart the film as a film. Okay, I'm just going to look at some of the things that, you know, as I'm sitting there in the movie theater, are like, Ugh, God, you know what? Man, I wish we could go back to, you know, movie writing from 10, yeah, even 10 years ago, or but more like 20 or 30 years ago when people knew how to write a film. You know, that kind of fun crap where it's just fun to, like, pick apart the little, little, uh, this is, this is schlock kind of a thing. No, I don't think the movie was horrible or anything like that on this standpoint. As a film, it was perfectly okay. And that's the first part of this review. It's going to be just that. It's just going to, we're going to look at the movie and like, what can we learn as GMs from the really shitty writing and storytelling that happened here? Okay, so that we can hold ourselves to a better standard than Messrs. Daly and Goldstein. But anyway, the second part is going to be why I swore at the screen and walked out of there personally insulted. Okay, because that did happen. Okay, there was a point where I swore out loud, not loud loud, but out loud at the tiny GM and was officially done with the movie. And when I walked out... I was furious, okay? And we'll talk about why, okay? But I'm going to warn you. Uh, first of all, okay, like, rest of the disclaimers. Number one, I have seen people talking about this movie online, and they have given a lot of crap in the movie a pass because it's like, well, <laughs> you know, that sort of tone is just like a D&D game, and yep, that's exactly what would happen with an incompetent party screwing up, yada, yada, yada. 
Like it, it so wonderfully captures the D&D experience of a bunch of goobers playing a shitty game. I am not giving the movie any passes on that front because at the end of the day, the movie was a movie. The movie is a fantasy adventure movie. We have seen fantasy adventure movies and science fiction movies and adventure movies in general that manage to be delightfully fun, but still manage to be well-written and well-put together. Okay, I'm not comparing this to the Lord of the Rings trilogy either, okay? I'm not an idiot. I know, like, you don't compare every painting to, like, Monet's water lilies and say, well, everything else sucks because everything should be Monet. That's ridiculous. But I am holding this up to the standards of, like, you know, the original Star Wars movies or, or um, you know, like, like even fun fun adventure movies like, like Willow and stuff going back the day you go that's the kind of standard that i'm holding this for holding it to and i'm judging it on that basis i'm judging on how well put together the script is and whether it just follows the basic rules of script writing and character development and stuff like that and things like tone okay i'm not giving the movie a free pass because yeah this is exactly what my idiot players would do because i didn't pay 20 bucks to go watch my idiot players fuck up my brilliant plot I went to watch a movie. So, uh, massive spoilers ahead is the set is the next warning. Okay. I'm going to spoil the hell out of the entire movie beginning to end. Okay. I do not actually have the movie script in front of me. I have only seen it once and there I am therefore only going by memory. I may get a few things wrong. What can you do? Um, I did refresh my memory by going through a, uh, a couple of plot summaries just to make sure that I was remembering things correctly, but I'm still going to get some stuff wrong. But still, if you're planning to see this movie, shut this off now. Okay. Final warning. In the second half of this, we are going to be talking, or I am going to be talking not just about the film as a film, but also about my personal deeply held values, virtues, and convictions. Okay, because that is the place where the movie personally and somewhat intentionally attacked me. I realize I might not have the same values as other people and I might not share the same preferences and the same beliefs about culture and society and all of that. And I realize this is all now terribly political and angry is going political. Um, it is all, but by the same token, you know, I'm, that's, there is a point where everybody has virtues, values, and convictions, and everybody believes in them for reasons. And especially if you have taken time to actually, um, analyze them and think about why do you believe what you believe? Why do you believe what is right is right? And of course, then there's the, the whole, like, The political side of things, like, you know, and I I made this point in the Discord where, like, everything has been conflated with politics now so that you can't have a discussion about, say, um, your values or what, you know, what you consider to be moral values without someone saying, well, this is all political now, which is kind of a shame because politics and values, like, politics is downstream from values, okay? Politics is the compromise people as groups make so that they can agree on a core set of values that will be enforced. And all the rest of it is everybody's kind of free to pick their own stuff from there. Okay. Politics is the 
policies we set. That's why it's called politics and political and policy and polis, meaning city. That is how we are governed, how we are ruled. But your values encompass more than your politics. For example, I hold many values that I do not think should be enshrined in law. <laughs> you know, they are just what I think people, how I think is a good way to live my life and how I will encourage other people, especially my children, to live their lives. And to some extent, what I, you know, when I say this is not life advice, that's the values that creep in there. Those are the, this is what I think makes for a good life for people. Everybody has a right to those opinions, and I'm not going to say that everybody's, you know, everybody must share mine. I'm not dictating what you must believe, okay? But that stuff's coming out in the second half of this. If you can't sit through that without retching because I dare to have an opinion, and I know there are people out there who feel that way because they keep emailing me and saying, stop having opinions on things. It offends me. I had to ban one of them a couple of weeks ago from commenting on my website anymore because every one of their comments was, I like your article, but I want you to know that when you let your opinions known, you are ruining everything and I hate you and you make me sick and it's going to keep you from being successful. Literally was told those things. So I know there's people out there like that who cannot absolutely stand the idea that somebody might have opinions on values that don't match theirs. Okay, which is what makes me so nervous about doing this shit to begin with, which is a shame because if we can't discuss our deeply held values um, and discuss them openly and honestly as adults, we also can't reach the compromises that allow us to set reasonable policy where I say, yes, I value this very much as a person and I think it is important, but I am willing to compromise here so we can live in a society. I will hold myself to this higher standard, but if we could at least make this illegal, then I would feel better. And then someone else will say, well, okay, we can go there. And then that's how laws are supposed to get made. But it starts with people with many different viewpoints and virtues and values values, all reaching a compromise and saying, okay, these are the core things that we all agree. Let's just go with those. Anyway, point is, I am going to stop and let you know when I am transitioning from let's make fun of a crappily written movie that was okay to now angry is letting you know how he personally feels and why this movie was an affront. Okay? And then I will walk you through the whole thing. I have built a very strong case. If you wanted me to write uh, an essay on film, you know, an analysis of this film, I could. And I, you know, I had to take a couple of film theory courses because it was felt, yeah. And, you know, modern universities feel it is very important for you to be well-rounded, which is why I got an education in film theory as part of getting an accounting degree and also uh, stuff on the history of the Middle East. And this is why my fiance, the human resources expert had to become very good at understanding Frankish architecture of the medieval period because that's useful and really a good use of our money. Anywho, oh, I'm sorry, a political opinion came in before the warning. Okay, I'll, I'll reiterate that later that the university system is fucked. Anyway, okay, so those are the rules. Two parts. The flaws of the film as a film, why the film insulted me personally, the film gets no passes because it's just D&D, uh, spoilers rampant, and spoilers for Angry's personal deeply held beliefs rampant.
Okay, so let's talk about the movie as a movie. And at this point, I assume if you're listening, you have already seen the movie. Um, and if you have not seen the movie, Look, I don't want to do this. I don't know when this became the, the de rigueur of doing movie reviews where you first summarize the entire plot of the movie. I, I, oh, should I? Maybe I should. Maybe I should so that everybody has the context. And besides, that's the cool thing to do. And, and every piece of internet content has to be three hours long anyway to make it completely unwatchable if you have a 20-minute commute or whatever. So, yes, let's start. I'm, I'm inserting a bullet point here where we are going to summarize the movie. The movie opens in the Forgotten Realms, in a prison in the frozen north, where we meet our two main characters, Elgin and Hulda. Now, Elgin is sometimes called Elden or Ed, oh, sorry, Edgin. It depends, like, his name is written online in summaries in several different ways. I could have sworn through the movie it was Edgin, but then there's some people who are telling me it's Elgin. Yeah, I don't know. So anyway, Edgen and Hulda are up for parole because they have committed a terrible crime. And now they have to convince the parole board of the frozen North prison that they should be freed because Edgen only did it to be a good daddy. And then we are treated to an exposition dump in the in the form of Edgen's backstory, wherein he explains he was recruited by the Harpers, a good-aligned group of rob from the rich, give to the poor, oppose fascism and tyranny type people who do exactly that. Rob from the rich, give to the poor, oppose tyranny, yada, yada, yada. They do good deeds. And so he joined them. And then one day, um, he was forced to, or... And then one day, he helped them go against the evil wizards of Thay. And the evil wizards of Thay were vengeful. So they killed his wife and his daughter, and his, and, and, but not his daughter. His daughter survives, okay? His wife hid his daughter away. So he rescues his daughter and he forsakes the Harpers, blaming them for the death of his wife. And now he has to raise his daughter alone, he befriends Hulda the Barbarian, and they form a band of thieves, and they turn to a life of crime to support themselves, which she brings Kira in on. She's just part of the thieving, the thieving group. Stuff happens, they go on a lot of thieves, and then eventually one day, they and their thieving group are hired to break into the Harper's stronghold to steal things. And he is told that in the Harper's stronghold is the Tablet of Resurrection that will bring his wife back to life. Huzzah, says Edgin, I can bring my wife back to life and my family will be complete once more. And so I did it. But they are betrayed by the wizard who hired them and Edgin and Hulda are captured and sent to prison. This is all the backstory. And interestingly enough, this is very appropriate for modern D&D because this is the beginning and the end of Edgin being interesting through the entire movie. Spoiler alert for later points and opinions, but Edgin is only interesting in his backstory and then he ceases to do anything from there on out. I will come back to that. Anyway, the party escapes from prison, and then they go and try to find Edgin's daughter. She was left with um, the, the, the party's rogue and con artist, Forge, played by Hugh Grant. 
Um, they discover her location. They go to Hugh. They go to Hugh Grant and say, "Give me my daughter back." Hugh Grant says, "I'm a better father than you are," and then lies to the daughter and says he only was robbing people because he wanted to get rich and he didn't care and he abandoned you. And the daughter says, "Fine, I hate you," and storms out. And then Edgin kidnap, you know, like captures them and they escape. They realize that the only way to prove Edgin is innocent to his daughter is to recover the the tablet of restoration which Forge the scoundrel has in his vault. And so they decide to put together a ragtag team of their old sorcerer buddy and a druid, and they're going to go break into the vault and steal the, steal the, the tablet. Um, much adventure, air quotes, ensues, and ultimately they do attempt the heist only to discover that Forge has been manipulated by an evil red wizard of Thay who is using this giant Colosseum game to gather the population of Neverwinter together so that she can suck all their souls out and make them zombies or something. And meanwhile, Forge is going to steal everybody's money and run away. So the party steals from Forge's vault, um, they get the Tablet of Restoration, and then when they realize that the evil wizard is taking over the city, they turn back, they fight her. In the fighting, Hulda is killed, and they use the Tablet of Restoration to bring her back to life, and then the party goes on their merry way. That is essentially the movie in a nutshell. And what's really interesting is once I get done explaining the backstory, it takes only like three minutes to explain the plot beats. Like, they're gonna do a heist. They bring into the vault, and then they do. There's a few other little bits and pieces, and they, I will get to them as I talk about things, but at least now you have enough of a context if you haven't seen the movie to know where I'm going from here. Okay, so now let's talk about how the plot is constructed. Plot in air quotes. This plot is what people in the business of filmmaking call an and-then script. Or you can also say that it is loaded down with deus ex machina, okay? The main characters throughout the entire film, they do not really advance the plot or overcome obstacles so much as accidentally blunder into problems that then are solved by other blunders. And there's a really funny scene right at the beginning that warns you exactly what you're in for. Okay, so they get, they escape the prison in the frozen north, and then we get a montage with some music as they are crossing the frozen north, and then during this montage, there's no dialogue, there's no interactions or anything, you just see it on the screen with music, they walk into this camp. There's a camp in the frozen north, or actually I think it's in the transition between the frozen north and not the frozen north or whatever. They walk into this camp, and there's two horses near the edge of the camp, not tied up, there's no guards, there's nothing, just two horses on the edge of an otherwise empty camp. The two main characters who have just escaped from prison walk up, get on the horses, and ride away, and then they have the horses for much of the rest of the first act. Okay, I jokingly turned to Tiny and said, did they, 
steal the horses? Did they buy the horses? Where did these horses? Is there just like a like a horse lending thing? Like you know how in some cities they just have like scooter rental places or or bike rentals where you just like swipe your card and you can take a bike and take it wherever. Uh, is that what this was? And now that's just a funny, funny joke. And if it was the only thing like that, you'd be like, okay, you know, there was some editing and there was going to be a more of a scene. It was going to show them like sneaking up and distracting guards and there were, you know, people and then stealing their horses. But there was literally no one in this abandoned camp. It was just they, they walked up, climbed up on the horses and rode away. Okay. Except that everything in the plot unfolds exactly that. So later on, they find themselves in the tavern and they're talking about, well, we have to find Kira. We left Kira with Forge, the scoundrel. How will we find Forge? And then he literally, Edgin, literally flips over a cocktail napkin and on the back, there is a flyer with Forge's magical winking Harry Potter picture face uh, declaring him to now have suddenly become the Lord of Neverwinter. No, problem solved. He must be in Neverwinter. In Castle Neverwinter, of course, or Castle Never, or whatever it is. Because he's right on the back of this flyer that I was using as a cocktail napkin in this bar. Wait, how are we going to do this? Oh, well, we did it. Later, they discover that all of the heist treasure that they want to steal, including the Tablet of Resurrection, is in this vault protected by Mordenkainen's seal. And Mordenkainen's seal is a magical seal that cannot be broken by anything because it's Mordenkainen, the most powerful wizard in a completely different universe, not Forgotten Realms. But that aside, anywho, what are we going to do? And then suddenly the sorcerer, or no, 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 it was the barbarian. The barbarian says, wait a minute, we, there is a magic helm that can undo the seal of Mordenkainen, and my tribe happened to have had it during a battle I was at. And then they go to get the helm. Later on, much later, they are in trouble. They, they, a bridge has collapsed. They are in the Underdark. There is no way for them to get across. Oh, dear. Then the helm, that the magic helm MacGuffin that we need is on the other side. What will we do? Wait, what is that staff? Oh, this is just a walking staff I took up in a throwaway gag scene. It was a walking stick. That's not a walking stick. That's a magical portal stick. That's Gladys's magical portal stick. The hither thither staff. Excellent. Problem solved. Later still, in the same vault, they are accosted by the undead soldiers of the Wizard of Thay, and the badass paladin leaps into them and kills them all. And then they're like, great, you killed them all. We can leave. We can get the helmet and leave. And he's like, no, we can't because they get back up. They are undead. And sure enough, they get back up. And the paladin, like, I feel like the paladin at some point, like before that should have said something like, okay, I'm going to go fight the undead. They're going to be really distracted with me because they happen to personally hate me because of my backstory. You all run because even if I take them down, they're just going to keep getting up. But instead he didn't. He's walking away from the battle like, oh, I won, except we got like 20 seconds tops before the battle starts again. But I'm going to put my back to them and just walk over to you guys. Okay. So, oh goodness, what are we going to do? The undead are getting back up and laying into us and we can't possibly beat them again exactly the same way because I guess the paladins tired? Don't know. Fortunately, it just happens that a giant fat dragon chooses that moment to jump into the room 
and start devouring the undead. Now they have to run away from the fat dragon, which they conveniently end up in a cave underneath the ocean that is dripping water, um, and then they trick the dragon into breathing fire, the only, by the way, thing they have done in this entire scene that actually involved some forethought and solution. Uh, and then they just swim from the bottom of the ocean bedrock to the shore. Okay, but this is like endemic of how the whole plot of the movie is put together. It is just, what are we going to do? Oh, I have suddenly remembered the solution to our problem is here. Even when they're hiring the druid, like, how are we going to get into the, the castle the first time? What we need is a druid, because druids are very good at infiltrating castles. Of all the classes in the Dungeons & Dragons um, rulebook, the one class you think of when you need someone to sneak in, infiltrate, and spy is, of course, the nature priest. I mean, that makes sense. But even the nature priest thing was like, oh, I just happen to know a druid. What if we hire her? She could turn into a deer. Now, I know the deer thing was a joke, but okay. Okay, so that's the point, is that this plot is just a sequence of things that happen. Okay? Like, anyway. The other thing, the second issue that I have with the movie is the overall tone is very inconsistent. It is a comedic movie, and that is fair enough. I don't mind a comedic movie. It is funny, okay? But like many modern funny movies, it doesn't know when to stop being funny. It doesn't know when to let a joke land. And it doesn't know when enough is enough. And like, so there's a scene where they're using a speak with dead spell, right? And they, 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 they're bringing back people who might know where this helmet is. And they get to ask five questions and then the person passes out dead again. Okay. There's this, oh, there's several running gags throughout this scene. One is if they don't ask someone five questions, then they can't go back to being dead and, and they don't want to leave anybody roaming around not being dead, yada, yada, yada. So, right, whatever. Okay, then there's the other joke that they're just asking random corpses from a battle uh, what happened trying to track down a particular magical item as it was hot potatoing its way through the battlefield. So the information they get from each corpse is incomplete or sometimes useless because there was one guy, and oh, you he, he slipped and fell on his bathtub and didn't even make it to the battle. And Okay. And I'll admit, the, this stuff was funny. It was funny scenes. I laughed. I laughed at the bathtub thing. I laughed when the first guy took, you know, he's running with the helmet. Because you know, they did it all in this very dramatic flashback, by the way. And was, so as the corpse tells the story, the guy's running along, and by, which is not how Speak With Dead works, by the way. You don't get to speak a whole story or anything. But neither here nor there. Okay. The problem was this scene took a lot of time and the same joke was repeated multiple times and it could have been tightened up. And I wouldn't care so much, but in the end, this movie was like two hours and 10 minutes of mostly fluffy bullshit, okay? Which, okay, maybe I just don't have the patience to sit through a modern movie anymore, but this is a movie that could have been done in an hour and 45 minutes tops. Okay, 
There's a lot of witty banter between the characters, and a lot of the humor stems from that particular kind of witty banter um, where the characters aren't as witty or glib as they think or that they wish to be. And the perfect example of this done right is, of course, the Firefly series, okay? Especially Malcolm Reynolds. Uh, Captain Mal, he was very good at not being as glib as he thought he was, you know, about starting a speech and then losing the speech in the middle, or, you know, saying something because he's setting up a clever line and then the other person doesn't say what what they think, what he thinks is coming. And so then he, he just doesn't know what to do. Like the, the classic, you know, where he, he turns to Jane and says, do you want to run this ship? And Jane says, yes, I do. I've been very clear about that. And, and then Mal stunned because he was expecting Jane to say, no, you know, Mal is now stunned and then he can't follow up. So he's like, well, you can't. Okay. That's an example of it done right. The banter here is lackluster. Again, I'm not going to hold it against the film for not being as good as good. I mean, Joss Whedon is like the king of that kind of interaction. Okay. The problem is that um, the movie is in a lot of ways very clearly trying to, uh, to imitate a bunch of stuff from other movies that has worked. Okay, there's a lot of beats and a lot of character archetypes and a lot of moments that are ripped almost wholesale, mostly from the earlier days of the Marvel franchise. I know some people looked at the trailer and they were like, this is Guardians of the Galaxy, but D&D. And I don't think that comparison is fair, but I do think there's something to be said for the fact that they were literally just trying to emulate that style of movie. The final battle between the group and the um, and the, uh, the 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 Red Mage of Fey um, was so very clearly calling back to the first Avengers movie, that very particular scene that became like iconic for the Avengers movie, where you have the camera following the action as each of the heroes comes in and does something awesome in one, like all as part of one big action kind of a thing, right? Like that's very clearly what they were trying to do. So, you know, combine that with the overall level of incompetence of the characters and all of that. And you get this idea that they, they were trying, they, they didn't write their own film. They were trying to imitate other films. I guess that's a safe and easy way to do it, but really this does look like it was spit out by a marketing machine that was just trying to Im imitate inartfully things that had been done well by other movies. But again, you know, that's, that's just fun. That's just how the day, how things work. And if this was the complaint about the movie, I'd have no problem with it. It was basically fun. It was, it was a crappy Marvel movie. It was, it was, you know what? It was like a C tier Marvel movie. Okay. It wasn't as good as the Marvel of old, but it also wasn't, um, like the shit that Marvel is turning out lately. Uh, you know, it was like Thor 2. It was a dark world. This is this was the dark world. This was Thor 2. It wasn't as offensive as Thor 3 or Thor Love and Thunder, but it sure as hell wasn't the Avengers, and it really wanted to be. Okay. 
Now, one, the last thing I want to get into in the f- what I see as the flaws of the film as a film will actually serve as a really good transition to me losing my mind about the insultingness of the film, okay? And this has to do with the inconsistent motivations of the characters, okay? So, um, I was going to do Edgin first, Edgin and Hulda, but I'm going to start with this, the subplot with the treasure to illustrate exactly what I mean. Okay. So at this point in the story, Edgin wants to get the, the Tablet of Resurrection back from Forge's vault to prove to his daughter that he was actually trying to restore his family and that is why he was put in prison and abandoned her. Okay, because there's this this whole plot, like, he abandoned his daughter, he feels terrible, his daughter feels abandoned, and Forge lies and says, your dad is nothing more than a greedy criminal thief, he was just trying to steal money and he didn't care about you. So, Edgin wants to get this tablet of resurrection and say, to prove, no, no, I was doing it to bring mom back to life and we could be a family again, and I could make us whole again, and, you know, put back the pieces, and then, you know, take care of you, and everything would be wonderful. So he needs to get into Forge's vault, and there's a plot where Forge has been gathering wealth from all of the nobles all over the place because he plans to steal it. So his vault is full of ill-gotten treasure, okay? When Edgen and Hulda realize they have to break into the vault, they have a conversation about, well, we need to break into the vault. We can't do it ourselves. We're going to need to hire a team, Okay, actually, wait a minute. I skipped something that is very important, and I'm just going to point this out in case somebody somehow missed it. This is not a Dungeons & Dragons movie. This is not a fantasy adventure movie. This is, of course, a heist movie. Because every fucking thing now has to be a heist movie. And I should have brought that up when I said this movie is just trying to imitate other movies to just basically appeal to the basest mass market. Okay, so in addition to trying to be the Avengers and, you know, and capture that sort of Joss Whedon-esque or James Gunn-esque sort of, you know, fun hero team dynamic of incompetent but ultimately successful heroes uh, who can't talk to each other, it was also trying to be every heist movie ever. And when I think Dungeons & Dragons, I think Ocean's Eleven. Let me tell you. I sure as hell don't think of, you know, heroes going into dungeons fighting dragons. I, yes, technically they did that. They did go into one dungeon briefly to fight one exceedingly fat deus ex machina dragon that was mainly only there to eat the undead and chase them away. Um... But anyway, so this was also a heist movie, and that pissed me off, too. I wanted a fantasy adventure movie. (laughs) What an idiot that I thought I would go to a Dungeons & Dragons movie and get Dungeons & or Dragons for more than 30 seconds of runtime, and instead watch Incompetence plotting a stupid heist. Because it was a stupid heist. It was two stupid heists. They're stupid. Anyway, so the treasure, right? They need to hire a team to get them in so they can get the tablet. But they have no money. What will they do? Well, there is treasure in the vault. So the treasure, when they will hire a team and the team can take the treasure and they can take the tablet and rescue Kira, the daughter, right? Okay. So 
this whole treasure thing becomes sort of weird, and this falls into inconsistent motives, because then you look at the team they assemble. So first you've got Edgen. Edgen has no interest in the treasure. He has never shown interest in the treasure. He is interested in redeeming his relationship with his daughter and bringing his wife back to life. He explained that in his extensive backstory. Okay? Hulda is not interested either. Um, she is... It turns out late, like Hulda, it turns out later, um, her motive, uh, morphs into Edgen's motive instead. Um, he replaces Ed, or she replaces Edgen in the second half of the movie, but we'll get to that below the fold. Um, but, so Hulda's not interested in the treasure. The third member of the group, the, 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 the sorcerer with no self-confidence, which, by the way, you know what? Actually... Side note here. No, no, no. Let me let me finish this thought. The sorcerer with no self-confidence. Well, he was part of the original band and he too was betrayed and but for Locke, he would have been captured. He's pretty pissed at Forge. He considers Edgen and Hulda to be friends and um, he's also basically living a crappy life. He's not really super in it for the money. Maybe a little bit, but you know, then his motives are unclear. And then finally they recruit, um, a druid. Um, she is from a group of wood elves that despise Neverwinter because Neverwinter has been going all Saruman on the forests, you know, and really Neverwinter should know better. You know, so they, you know, they're environmental terrorists. Um, so she has no interest in the money. So what's really interesting is that they started with this problem of how are we going to pay the mercenaries that we hire? We will pay them with the treasure we steal. And then they end up with a group of four people, none of whom are interested with the tre in the treasure. Okay, fine. That's totally okay. But there is this huge interplay in the middle between a paladin whose help they need and Edgin about the treasure and Edgin's greed. To the point where Edgin is even bound to an oath to not keep the treasure, but instead to distribute it amongst the poor, being true to his Harper virtues. Now, of course, he had abandoned the Harpers because he blamed his association with the Harpers with everything that went wrong in his life. That's, again, a whole other different story. But nonetheless, at no point was Edgin greed motivated. Nobody in that group was. So this, the whole, we, we can steal the treasure from the vault and the treasure is being gathered became a complete non-issue, but Edgen kept getting treated as this greedy shit by other characters through the movie, which the point was of his whole journey was I need to prove I'm not a greedy jerk to my daughter so she will understand I did not abandon her for money. That I, you know, I was trying to restore our family and was, you know, and got captured. And this person has been lying to you and saying that I'm a greedy thief ever since. So it was really weird how much focus was given to this treasure and that the treasure must be distributed to the poor and the paladin's whole, like, well, you must give it away. I will not be part of this thievery, yada, yada, yada. Because all anybody had to do was say, oh, actually, 
we're not really interested in the treasure, it turns out. Originally, we were going to take the treasure to pay the people who helped us, but it turns out I'm just in it for the Tablet of Resurrection from to bring my wife back to life and reunite with my daughter. Hulda is along with me. She doesn't really care about the money. Simon is personally vengeful against Forge, and the Druid just wants to save the trees. So it turns out, actually, our motives are all totally good and pure. We're all good-aligned characters, some lawful, some chaotic, but good-aligned. And then the Paladin said, oh, Okay, I respect that. I'll stop giving you shit. Forget I made you swear any oaths. Here's the helmet of magicness to get into the vault. Have a nice day. Okay. The, there's like this really weirdly inconsistent motives throughout the movie. And another one happens with Hulda. Initially, Hulda is a member of Edgin's band. Okay, after Edgin's wife is killed and he takes his daughter away and forms the group of thieves, Hulda is kind of the first sign up in the group. And then they all take on thieving together. And Hulda does, it's sort of implied early in the movie that Hulda becomes kind of like um, Kira's aunt, her fun aunt. Kira's the daughter. The fun aunt, the fun cool aunt, right? Who, who looks over her um, as part of this band. But... And meanwhile, Kira's main backstory is she was um, exiled from her clan because she fell in love with someone that the clan didn't approve of. It turns out later that it was a halfling, which is sort of played for laughs. But then later, what's really weird, and you get this like sense of, oh, it's true love, and you know, she was exiled for true love, and he moved on, and he can't have her. But then in the end, he, she meets another, like at the last minute of the movie, she meets another halfling, and she's checking him out, and the halfling's checking him out, and it turns out that her, she was not exiled over true love, she was exiled because she had a weird fetish. She's got a fetish for tiny people. Which, good messaging there, but okay. Anyway, that aside, though, through the second act of the movie, gradually, Hulda's relationship with Kira becomes her motivation without it actually at any point being addressed. Hulda just gradually becomes increasingly protective of Kira. So she kind of absorbs Edgin's motive. Okay. And at this point, that's it. So it, it's all just inconsistent motives, right? The, the motives are all over the place. You don't really understand what the characters are about. They say they're about one thing and really they're about another thing. Um, elements of their motives come and go and don't really matter. There's actually this whole thing too with um, the sorcerer who can't attune to the helm of magicness uh, because he has insecurity issues uh, that come from apparently not being worthy of his family name, which is at no point really set up until he puts on the helmet and suddenly the ghost of his grandfather is talking to him in magical drippy lava lamp world and saying, you're not worthy of this shit. How dare you? You're just a sorcerer. We're all wizards. You're a sorcerer. So, you know, some setup on that would have been nice. But anyway, inconsistent motives, yada, yada, yada. This ends the part where I'm just picking apart the movie, okay? Where I'm just kind of, like, looking at, um, uh, you know, just the, the flaws of the film as a film. Because now I want to switch gears and get political. Okay. This is, okay, so this is your warning now. 
If you don't want to hear what Angry thinks about things, about the world and about society, and about this movie being insulting to good-minded people, uh, now's the time to quit. And then you just got a fun rant about how horses come out of nowhere and the fat dragon was an idiotic deus ex machina that everybody thought was delightful and where the hell did that staff even come from, okay? Everybody who doesn't want to be here from here on out, go. The rest of you understand this. I am not really going to defend my viewpoint, okay? I value what I value for reasons that are deeply personal to me, okay? I will stand by those virtues. I will stand by them to the day I die, and when I go to the pearly gates and meet St. Peter, I will meet them knowing I held good values in my heart, no matter what any of you think of me. And I will also not necessarily defend to any great degree my interpretation of the movie. I am merely going to let you see the movie through my eyes. You may disagree in the end. You may think I'm making hay out of nothing. You may think I am an istophobe who is predisposed toward finding offense, even though there is very little evidence of that. Um, you may think all of these things, and that is fine. You may think whatever you want of me. I honestly don't care. But in the Q&A portion and in any comments that anybody posts, I'm not gonna say, well, okay, here's my proof for why I'm right or anything else. I'm going to tell you what I feel, I'm going to point out what I saw, and then I'm gonna ask you to just personally, seriously think about those things, and maybe you agree, maybe you disagree, and maybe you think that I'm an idiot for being upset about this stuff. I'm totally okay with that, okay? Those are the ground rules. If you want to discuss, by the way, these points afterwards, uh, I'm going to instruct the mods to leave you alone in the live event chat for a while, for, for 24 hours. For 24 hours, you can have whatever discussion you want in the live text chat, chat channel, text chat, text chat channel. And you can have the discussion you want in the comments of this recording, and I will... You know, I will be light on the moderation button, but I'm also probably not going to step in and have anything more to say. I am taking what's probably going to end up being 90 minutes to have my say, and I feel very confident that I'm going to make a complete say. So there's probably nothing I can add after this. This is just, here's what I saw, and here's how I felt, and here's why. Okay. As I said at the beginning, there was a point in the movie where I turned to Allie and swore aloud, okay? It is the point at which Edgin and his band has um, broken into Forge's vault. Remember, Forge is the uh, scoundrel who has kidnapped Edgin's daughter and poisoned her against him. Edgin has been trying through the whole movie to prove to his daughter that he is not greedy and that he all he ever wanted to do was save the family and also rescue the daughter from evil Forge, okay? There's a confrontation. The party is on the boat that is laden with Forge's ill-gotten treasure. Forge comes running up with Kira and points to the boat and says, You see, Kira? He is just the greedy thief I told you. He is running off with all of this treasure. And then Edgin comes forward and he holds out the, the Tablet of Resurrection and he says, No, see, for this is the Tablet of Resurrection. This is the only thing I cared about and it proves I was telling the truth. I only wanted to reunite us with your mom and be a family again. At which point... 
Forge, played reasonably delightfully by Hugh Grant, though a little overplayed by Hugh Grant. He wasn't Jeremy Irons overplayed, but he was a little overplayed. You know, but but then again, this is this was a a you know discount Marvel movie. They couldn't get Goldblum, so they had to get Hugh Grant doing his Goldblum, which is what happened there. <laughs> anyway, so he said, so Forge grabs Kira by the throat, or you know, grabs Kira and holds a knife to her throat and says, "Get away from my ship and put the treasure down." And I am taking your daughter, and we are going. And that is when Kira realizes Forge is a bad guy. And now they are standing there, they have the standoff, and nobody knows what to do. And then Edgin valiantly, using something that was set up previously in the movie, rescues his daughter from the scoundrel that stole him from you, from her, stole her from him. Which is what I would like to say, except that is not actually what happened. It is Hulda the Barbarian who leaps forward and valiantly throws a potato, which was set up earlier in the movie, throwing potatoes is her thing, and rescues Kira. And it's at that point that I turned to Allie and said, do you know who should have rescued Kira? Her fucking father. Okay? That was Edgin's payoff scene. That was the scene that redeemed him and resolved his conflict and his motivations. And it was taken to him, taken from him, and given to another character, okay? That scene is the bookend of a pattern that begins much earlier in the movie, where the movie would like you very much to know that Edgin is extraneous and that he is wrong for wanting to be a good man and a good father. Okay. And the rest of this, I'm going to take you through now. Okay. Because it was that moment where my fury finally burst forth. Okay. Later on, by the way, when they confront the Red Wizard of Thay, it is not Edgin who defeats the Red Wizard, who is, by the way, a member of a faction that murdered his wife, a, you know, a faction that he ended up personally in conflict with and that defeated his wife. It is not he who finally ends the wizard. It is not even he who turns the tides. He bonks her a couple of times on the head with a guitar before she again gets the upper hand. And then it is the incompetent sorcerer and the druid who defeat the red wizard. So Edgin's victories his deserved victories, the payoffs for his motivations, the things that he has stayed true to through the whole movie have been given to other characters. Okay? The, at best, that's bad writing. Okay? You do not give one character's payoff to another. And by the way, I had the same issue at the end of Stranger Things when through the whole, at the end of the first season of Stranger Things, this is just an example of where it's just shit writing, okay? The end of the first season of Stranger Things, the kids who have spent the whole series trying to rescue their friend from the Never Never or wherever the hell, the, the Upside Down it was called, right? They do not rescue the friend. It is actually the friend's mother who rescues the friend. They actually defeat the Never Never monster, 
okay? And that is actually backwards. For the mother, in mother bear fashion, should have been the one to defeat the never-never monster, and the kids should have been the one to save the child, because that was what they were doing through the whole movie. Okay, this is, what happens is you have these inconsistent, like an inconsistent payoff. The character has a motivation, and the story is supposed to end with the payoff of that motivation. The character has a conflict, and the story is supposed to end with the, with the uh, resolution of that conflict. The story, or the character has a failing, and the story is supposed to end with the redemption of that failing. Okay? Edgin is, from the beginning, the main character of the movie. He is the one who gets the introduction. He has all the backstory. He has all the motivation. The other characters are only motivated to help Edgin. Okay? And they all have their specific motivations, which are also much smaller. Edgin is the main character. He has the motivations. His victories are taken from him. This could just be bad writing. It could just be shitty writing. Okay? But it's not, because there's a pattern here, okay? The first warnings I had that I was going to have a personal and deep-seated issue with this film began back in February, okay? These screenwriters, John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein, gave an interview to Variety magazine, okay? And in this interview... Just as part of the interview, they pointed out that they particularly enjoyed writing the script to emasculate the main character. They said in interview, they didn't do it because they had an agenda. They didn't do it to prove a point. They didn't do it because it was woke. They did it because they thought it was funny. Okay. They admitted flat out that they wanted to humiliate the main character, and specifically to humiliate the main character over his masculinity. And when I saw that, and okay, I, you know, write your movie however you want. But I saw those interviews and I said, this movie is not going to be the movie for me. Because I don't want to see that. I don't want to see a main character humiliated. Okay, if I'm going to see a, a like a comedy like the 40-year-old the virgin or some shit like that. I want to go see a main character humiliated. I want to laugh at the humiliation of the main character. If I'm watching a sitcom, I want to watch the main characters be humiliated. Okay? If I'm watching a heroic fantasy adventure movie based on a game I have loved all my life, I don't want to see a main character humiliated. Why would I want to? The main character is supposed to be the person I identify with, or the person I aspire to be. So I don't want to see that person humiliated, okay? And then to be humiliated over masculinity, they can say whatever they want about not having a point or an agenda, and that's fine. I don't really care what the motives were. I care about the end result, okay? The reason I care about the end result is because it is deeply important to me to be a good man. Not a good person. A good man. Okay? I value very strongly the my role as a partner, a future husband, because I am getting married, and a future daddy. Okay? 
I think very strong and very hard about what it means to be a good man. Okay, this is of great concern to me. So I don't in general want to watch a movie about taking the piss out of good men. I don't think that's something that will entertain me. And I would have walked away from the film there. I was already soured on the movie because of all the OGL debacle. But what happened was some people I trusted gave me the opinion that this was not a big deal, that it didn't really show itself in the movie. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, if this person, this person, this person say it, I will go see it and judge for myself. And then the movie happened and I was very, very confused. Another reason, by the way, and this is very important, this is important to what, why I feel the way I do. And I'm gonna come back to drawing the pattern through the movie's plot, okay? Broken families are an epidemic in modern society, okay? I'm not just saying fatherlessness or anything else, I am saying broken families in general. The lack of family unit, especially in the United States, but across Western civilization, has become a deeply serious issue. As someone who studied a lot of economics in college as part of my accounting degree, and almost went for an economics minor, by the way, um, I can tell you that there is a 70-year body of work on the effects of broken family on the development of children and their future prospects the social, the economic, the cultural fallout of broken families, and especially of fatherlessness. And in the United States, fatherlessness is a particularly massive issue for certain marginalized communities in the United States. And it actually kind of surprised me that that wasn't addressed considering it could have been. After all, the main character did spend a few years in prison away from his child. And it would have been a very interesting story to tell about the this particular aspect of the fatherless epidemic, which while I, I personally have bones with that argument, I will say that at least would have been more edifying, okay? The breakdown of the family unit in general is heartbreaking. It is terrible. And history has shown us it is very, very bad for society. Strong nuclear families are very, very good for stable cultures. And as family units break down, you have a couple of things that tend to happen. Number one, you, you go back to pre-modern cultures and you, you start to see how um, societal collapse, you, you know, the collapses of these civilizations happens. But in the modern age, we need to be particularly worried about the breakdown of the family unit because that is the primary tactic that tyrants on both sides use to maintain power, okay? It, the, the Nazi party used the destruction of the family unit and the turning of families against each other to maintain government power. Because if you have no one else to rely on, you have only the government to rely on, and then the government can do whatever it wants. The same happened in Stalinist Russia. The same happened and continues to happen in communist China, okay? The family unit is extremely important for society. 
But this goes back to that whole thing I was saying at the beginning where like, I don't believe necessarily that just because I value something that it should be laws. Okay. I am not saying that non-family units should be outlawed. I am not saying that single mothers should be burned at the stake or anything like that. I don't even have a problem with that. Okay. I don't have a problem with homosexuality. I myself am bisexual. If, you know, a homosexual couple wants to raise a kid, that is fine too. I am good with all of that. Okay. Family in any form is preferable to no family, but there is also an ideal. Okay. And there is a body of evidence on that ideal. And while we should be tolerant of moving away from the ideal, we can't lose the ideal in our hearts. So the point is this ideal is very, very important to me on both a personal level, on a social level. But it's also important that you not mishear me and say, the Dungeons and Dragons movie is trying to seize control of our civilization. Okay, that is also not what I'm saying. I don't think this movie is purposely there to destroy families. I think this movie was written by a bunch of idiots who don't respect the family. And in so doing, they insulted me. And that is why I became angry. So let's start at the beginning and go back through this again. Okay. Edgen is a member of the Harpers, right? They are a charitable organization. They do good works, but they don't take pay. He is working for a nonprofit organization. Very early on, we learn that Edgen is suffering from a conflict over this. He explains it to his wife in flashback. I feel good about the work I am doing for the Harpers. It is good work, but I wish I could get paid because I want to provide for you and my daughter. I want to give us more. Now, this is an important and very traditionally fatherly conflict. The duty to provide for one's family. It is a conflict that I personally have struggled with a lot over the last couple of years because the job I have chosen to do, independent content creator and ultimately someday game designer and entrepreneur, is a highly risky and unstable one. And I am betting not just my future, but the future of my family on the fact that I can succeed. My family would be much better off if I were able to give up that dream and go back to a nice, stable career in accounting. But Allie and I have talked about that at length, and we're going to make a go at this, right? But the point is that you have that conflict inside of you. Am I doing the right thing, and can I provide for my family? So I understand that conflict very deeply. Of course, there is another conflict, too, that often comes up with the whole I must provide for my family conflict or uh, the, I must provide for my family ideal. And that is the conflict between providing and presence. This is where you get like the, the old stories about the workaholic father, right? The father who worked his ass off to provide for his family, not realizing that in so doing, he was not present for his family and that in the end, they much rather would have had him around and had him at the office less than all of the things he provided for them. There's another traditional conflict that plays out, okay? And the point is that this conflict is present in Edgin from the beginning. I have a job where I am doing good for the world, but 
I wish I could provide more for my family, which is what I feel is my duty to my family. Okay. That is a very good and noble conflict to have. This is not a scoundrel character. This is a character who is conflicted between two different good paths, two different virtuous noble paths. He is a good man and a good father. Okay? And now, at so, so his motives through the movie are then twofold. One, to restore his family. His wife has been killed unjustly because of his work. His work got his wife killed. And so he must deal with the guilt of that, but he also sees a path to restoring her. And then on the other hand, he must redeem himself in his daughter's eyes because his daughter feels as if Edgin has abandoned her that he has chosen his work over his daughter, chosen to pursue wealth over taking care of his family, okay? And the way that sort of thing gets redeemed, by the way, you've seen this in a thousand movies, right? Like, they, you know, they're, after Edgin rescues Kira from Forge, then they have that screaming conversation where he says, don't you see, all along I was just trying to give you a good life. I just wanted to give you what you wanted and I wanted to make you happy. And then she says, yeah, but I didn't need any of that. All I wanted was you. And then he comes forward and he pulls her into a hug and he says, I'm sorry I wasn't there for you. I should have been. And she says, I'm sorry too. I am grateful for what you have done to try and give me a good life. But please remember, I need you here as part of my life. And then roll credits. That is the redemption of that. The two main characters come to see eye to eye that Kira realizes that she has misjudged, and Edgin realizes that he has not pursued these virtues in a balanced way, that he has chosen one extreme over the other, and in so doing has lost sight of the relationship at the heart of it, okay? That's a proper redemption. That scene does not happen. Instead, we have two separate scenes where Edgin admits everything he desired was wrong, okay? Though, there is a scene where the party has lost hope and Edgin has lost hope. And he must now give them the speech, right? And the speech that he gives is basically, of all of you, I am the worst father of all because I was, or I am the worst of us all because I was neither a good father nor a good harper. So if I'm going to keep going at this, you all should because you're all better than me. Then everybody nods and sits with them. It's like, oh, yeah, you're right. You're, you kind of suck compared to the rest of us. Okay. It's, it's this immensely insidious moment where. Instead of someone stepping forward and saying, Edgin, don't you realize everything you've done, you've done for the right reasons. Yes, you've made mistakes, but in your heart, you've always believed in the right thing. And we're going to go get Kira so that you have a, a chance to, you know, try again. Is not the conversation that happens. Instead, the conversation is, yeah, you, you know, we all kind of suck, but you suck most of all. Anyway, let's figure this out. Okay. It is, so, 
Edgen is also, throughout the whole movie, lambasted for greed that never shows itself. And at the end, he is forced to admit by his daughter, like he admits to his daughter, that his desire to restore his family and provide for them was selfish and that he was wrong. And she does not forgive him for it. She does not say, gosh, uh, yes, these, you may feel you were selfish and I forgive you because she is too busy having replaced Endgame, okay? This again is the insidiousness of it, okay? That just by omission, it is demonstrated that Edgen is actually a bad person, okay? Edgen is responsible for all that has gone wrong, and he has denied his resolution, and he has denied his redemption, if you even think he must seek redemption, okay? That is why I got so mad when it wasn't Edgen who rescues his daughter, okay? Because by rights, he should have rescued his daughter, and then they should have had the screaming redemption conversation. And then they should have hugged and been together again. That did not happen. But that alone isn't the whole problem. Throughout the entire movie, there is a running gag about Edgen's extraneousness. Okay, early in the movie, the the druid Drelok or Drello or whatever the frig her name was, she says, oh, and you, what do you bring to the team? I see he's a wizard and she's a barbarian. What do you do? And he has this stammering, stuttering, charmingly flustered thing where he tries to say he comes up with plans where it's pointed out that all of his plans always fail and that he's basically incompetent. And so the result is he does nothing. He brings nothing to the team. But what's very interesting is that this conversation actually sums up the movie quite nicely because Edgin, through the entire movie, actually does nothing. Not even the things a bard should do. We can argue he is not a bard, he should not be a frontline fighter. Okay, fine. But there is a scene, for instance, where they have to negotiate with the paladin. Uh, to get him to give up the magic helm of getting into the vaultness. Um, because paladins have those things. Because they take them from barbarian wars uh, and lock them in the Underdark. This is the Undead plot again. Okay. Edgin refuses to deal with the paladin. He makes Hulda do the talking. He does not want to be involved. Okay. So he does not even have the negotiation. You might say Edgin is the mastermind, but interestingly enough, the two main plans that the party uses for their two main heists do not come from Edgin. It is actually Drellic or Drella, whatever the hell the, the druid's name is. Um, it was her idea to use the hither-thither staff to get into the vault by, you know, sneaking a portal in on a painting. Okay, that was her cunning idea. She proposed it. Before that, um... The, the Helm of Disjunction was both Hulda and Simon's idea. And before that, even, uh, hiring a druid to, to spy on the vault was Simon's idea. 
So there is not even a justification that you can say that the druid, the the um, the bard was the mastermind, because at no point did he mastermind anything. And as was pointed out, the few times when he did try to call plans, they did fail. Okay, not that there were very many. Every one of the characters gets one or two pretty awesome scenes. Hulda gets two distinct slow-motion, bullet-time, awesome barbarian fight scenes. Um, the, the druid, she gets to be, do the whole transform into 17 different animals in, like, five rounds. Uh, Wild-shaping, spying, chasing scene. Simon at least gets to have his moment where he confronts the ghosts of his past and convinces the um, convinces the the ghosts to let him attune to the helm. You know, proving his self-confidence. Edgin's only real moment uh, is at the very beginning when he gets to tell his backstory, which, to be fair, I guess that's a bard. But it is really interesting that when you look at the film, you realize that if Edgin wasn't there, the film would have been entirely the same. Especially because Hulda did gradually absorb his motivations. So that by the end, it is Hulda who rescues Kira. Okay, and much is made of this too. There is a, a scene that is played somewhat for laughs very early on when they walk into the Neverwinter Palace um, and Kira comes out and sees the dad and or sees Edgin and sees Hulda. And then she ignores Edgin and runs to Hulda and gives her a hug. And then, you know, like uh, Edgin mugs a bit and it's like, well, what was that about? You know, which starts to establish this relationship that Kira and Hulda have a much better relationship than Edgin and Kira do. And it's kind of funny because the relationships are treated very unequally. Okay. So Hulda and Edgin, essentially, they raised Kira together. I accept that. They were part of, they were the heads of the band of thieves. They raised Kira together. So we can say that maybe Hulda did become sort of a surrogate parent right? Then one day they take on a job. They leave Kira behind because it's too, they say it's too dangerous for her. And then they get caught and thrown in prison. Kira then becomes exceedingly resentful of Edgin for going off on this job, getting himself thrown into prison and no longer being a part of her life. Edgin feels equally tremendously guilty over it. Halda is along for the ride the entire time. Okay. When Halda dies in the final battle, we are treated to a montage sequence of Halda and Kira, and Kira growing up together, with Halda there taking care of her and taking taking rides and carriages and all of this stuff. It's a, it's that it's that montage moment of all our great memories together, Halda and Kira. Okay. And, and the life they had together. And now that she is dead, Kira has been robbed of this important person whom, unlike her father, does not abandon her. Unlike her father, she doesn't resent. Even though Hulda was by Edgin's side the whole time. Hulda abandoned Kira just as much as Edgin did. They both chose to ride off and leave Kira behind on the same heist. 
and they both ended up in prison, and they both came to rescue her at the same time. But Hulda and Kira have this wonderful relationship, and Kira holds nothing against Hulda. Edgin is blamed for this. The relationship is treated completely unequally, okay? The message is pretty simple. Edgin is extraneous in his daughter's life. He is unnecessary. He serves no purpose in the quest to get her back. He serves no purpose in her upbringing. He was wrong for wanting to restore his family. He was wrong for wanting to provide a good life. He did make a choice that was a bad choice. He chose to steal from the Red Wizards of Fae against the Harper's wishes when they arrested the Red Wizards, and that is what led the Red Wizards to um, arrest or kill his wife, right? And that's fair enough, and he, he harbors that guilt. But Edgin is also given no chance to rescue his daughter or avenge his wife's death on the Red Wizards of Fae. The other characters who are along for the ride do all of that for him. Edgin is also given no chance to redeem himself in his daughter's eyes. They never reconcile, or at least there is never a reconciliation shown on screen. Certainly not one big enough to be worthy of the plot-driving motivation that started the whole story. And it is all for that reason that I found myself being deeply offended. Because the story started with a this is a father who is doing everything in his power to be a good man and a good father. All he wanted to do was provide for his family, protect them, and restore them when the family was broken. He is not allowed to do any of that. He is replaced. He is pushed aside. He is the least competent of every character on screen. He is lambasted for his selfishness, even though it is never shown. He is never shown to be selfish or greedy in any way. Um, at worst, he is bitter. He is bitter because he tried to be a good person and his life was ruined for it. And in the end, when, his, when Hulda dies, he must give up his chance to be reunited with the woman he loved to restore this woman who, in his daughter's eyes, is a much more preferable parent to Edgin, who tried to do everything right and who did nothing wrong that Hulda did not also do. And that is why I walked out furious at this movie. Because that level of subtle dig at the concept of good fatherhood, or fatherhood in general, in this day and age, I don't want to say it's intentional because I don't want to judge the motives of the screenwriters, and clearly they don't know how to write a movie plot, so it could all just be accidental and inartful, but nonetheless, it is not a movie that I wanted to see. If I had known what was coming, I would never have paid for it. And it is not a movie that I will let my children see. Instead, we will all sit to watch Dungeons & Dragons, Wrath of the Dragon God. A much better movie in which a good man sets out with a powerful female barbarian and a band of heroes to save his wife and kingdom from an evil dragon. The end. And now I guess I will open this up to the Q&A.
Though I don't see... Okay. So I'm going to... I'll take questions at this point. Um, Nanban Jim is pointing out Edgin Satis sacrificing his own desires for the sake of his daughters was nice. Yes, I will admit that. That was a good moment. Um, and, I, you know, I'm not going to take that away. Like, the, again, that is a good father moment. But then the lack of gratitude or the lack of acknowledgement that he had made that sacrifice... And the, the, just the general expectation that that was what he should have done. And it was selfish that he even considered anything else, you know, like that's, that was part of also what drove me crazy. But really it was again, that moment where he had no resolution. He had no climax. He had no redemption. He had no anything. Nobody at any point in the movie told him he was right. The whole movie told him he was wrong. Oh, one other little thing that I didn't bring up while I'm waiting for questions. Um, so, uh, it was the... I wanted to point out that I'm really, really tired of the character who has no subtext or sarcasm. Like, ever since um, Drex in... Uh, whatchamacallit? What's the... Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, where, oh my god, it's this wacky character who... Under, he doesn't understand when people are joking. He... <laughs> Like, so now they have a paladin who's like that, too. It was like, oh, my God. Can we just stop Im imitating marble? You know? Okay. Proselys is saying, this isn't so much a question, just a comment. Your words on fatherhood and the dilemma, the dilemma of Ed Boy was suffering is hitting me hard. Uh, is hitting me... Yeah, let me try reading that again. Proselys, the dapper Metroid GM, is saying, this isn't so much a question, just a comment. Your words on fatherhood and the dilemma Edgin was suffering is hitting me really hard in a good way. So thank you for sharing it as powerfully as you did. You are welcome. I am glad to know that at least, you know, whether you agree or disagree on the analysis of the movie and you see that happening in the film, at least the virtue in there um, and the heart that I'm bringing to this is visible. You know, so... Yeah, and Matt Chaos is saying, I like how the Barbarian was like, you wasted it on me after she woke up. And yeah, and Nam Bam Jim is saying that was fitting for her character type. You know, okay, I will say that, like, hold up. The actress who played her um, and the, the character itself, Hulda was a great character. I really enjoyed her. In any other context, I would have had a lot of fun with her, you know? It was, but, and I re this wasn't even her fault. Like, like, I know it's like talking about the character versus the writer. What the writers chose to do, the choices they made, is what upsets me. Because underneath there, that is a movie that I could have had some fun with. Like I said, it was an okay Marvel movie at its best. And I didn't go in with high expectations. I could have enjoyed it. But it was really, really... Like I said, it hurt my feelings. <laughs> it's the only way to say it is it hurt my feelings at the end. Like, um, I, my heart was broken. You know, I really... If, if he had at least thrown a knife, like... You know, I didn't even point this out, too. Like, there were a number of scenes... Uh, I, like, ex Edgen's extraneousness, Okay. There's, there's more I wanted to throw in there because there are certainly, there is, there were jokes made 
about it. So there's one point where they say, okay, we need a distraction to get past the guards. And then everyone looks at Edgin, and then we do a jump cut, and Edgin comes walking up the hallway, strumming his guitar, and he's singing, lolly, lolly, la, bard song, bard song. And the guards are distracted, and everybody is sneaking past it, sneaking past the guards. Only it turns out that's not Edgin, that's Simon doing a uh, an illusion. So Edgin isn't even providing the distraction. He doesn't do the talking. He didn't provide the inspiring speeches. He didn't do the distraction. He's not the mastermind. It's like all of these places where you would have expected him to step up because at least he's a bard. Bards can cast spells, by the way. At no point did he use any magic. Uh, bards can use weapons. At the very least, he could have thrown a knife. He could have used a finesse weapon. You know, if he had been like the one thing, like was he was a good knife thrower, you know, like instead of Helga being the potato thrower, maybe he could have been a good knife thrower. Like he could always have had a knife in his mandolin and there were scenes where he would throw the knife and whatever. We could make jokes about that too. But in the end, if he had thrown the knife and rescued his daughter, same scene, but it would have worked. Okay. Nori, I guess this is more of a question of speculation, but what perceptions of D&D do you think this movie is going to have on people who, much like live streaming did, are being introduced to D&D for the first time through this movie? I don't think anybody um, is, um, is, is seeing this, is being introduced to D&D by this movie, okay? And if they are, they have no clue what the hell is going on. This movie did not do a good job of explaining itself to non-D&D fans, okay? There was a lot, because I tried, you, you try to go into a movie like this with a beginner's mind. Try to say, okay, what would this look like to someone who had no knowledge of D&D? There's a lot of gibberish that just isn't explained at all. Like, sorcerer and wizard and attunement and... Uh, what is counterspelling? Why was it? Why could we expect a sorcerer to counter a time stop spell? Is counterspelling a thing? You know, things like that. Where, where, like all of these little details that are sort of important to understand aren't really touched on in the movie. No, counterspelling does not kind of explain itself, Nan Ban Jim. Counterspelling explains itself if you already know a thing or two about D and D. The idea that you would expect one character to be able to undo the spells of another is a universe-specific detail that you work into your plot ahead of time to set it up later. This is called setup and payoff, okay? It is also something the movie didn't do at all, so it's not surprising. That whole lack of setup and payoff, um, like, like I went through the whole list of things that were not set up like the fat dragon and the horse and the hither thither staff and the helm and everything, right? Okay, so no, I don't think this is bringing people to the brand. And I mean, number one, the box office returns um, in the first week were not great. Uh, they, like they were okay, they were $40 million. It was a okay, it had a reasonable success, but they were hoping for between 75 and $85 million, I believe was their projection. And they did not get that. Um, and on top of that, viewership dropped off 60% between the first week and the second week, which is basically the death knell. That basically said when word of mouth got out, it didn't make anyone want to see the movie. So this movie, just like the other D&D &D movies, is not bringing anyone to the hobby. 
And it will probably be a while before we see another D&D movie. It will, in the end, have made its money back, and that is about the best anyone will be able to say of it. Uh, Nanban Jim, would you have been less disappointed if this was, say, a spin-off movie about a side character from a trilogy of more solid adventure D&D movies? Um, okay. With a bunch of caveats, possibly. If this was like the solo, a Star Wars story of, of a, uh, D&D cinematic universe, I probably could have enjoyed it. Um, if all the other issues were also cleaned up. Okay. I will admit I'm hard to please with movies, you know, given, depending on the movie and the expectations it sets. I am not hard to please if I go see the Super Mario Brothers movie or the Batman Lego movie. I am hard to please if I go see the D&D movie and people will say I am wrong to have expectations of that. But again, I am expecting a middle of the road fantasy adventure movie at minimum, if you're going to put that kind of budget in it and put the D&D name on it. Okay, if you just want to make a, a bland, crappy fantasy adventure movie, don't waste the money and put D&D on it. You know, it, it deserves a little bit more work. But that said, um, if, like, I could have enjoyed it, you know, just even based on all the flaws I went through, because it's just, like, the script was shit, right? Okay, end of the day, the script was shit. That's the problem. The script was shit. It was fun to watch. It was shiny noise, shiny lights and, and loud noises. And, but otherwise, the script was shit. Can you enjoy that kind of thing? Yeah, that's a guilty pleasure thing. Sort of thing I really wish I hadn't paid to see in the movie theater. But um, so, yes, I probably could have enjoyed the movie as a side movie. But being set up to assume that the movie was going to humiliate and insult the main character um, and then seeing how it pulled it off and seeing the subtlety with which it did it, um, then that is where, like, I wouldn't have enjoyed this movie no matter what it was, okay? I would have walked out furious, which I did. I literally walked out furious, okay? If he had at least had his victory, if he at least had been given the victories he had earned. Would the saving Kira from Hugh Grant scene, Suyin the Surger is saying, would the saving Kira from Hugh Grant scene and the character arcs have been more satisfying to you if Edgen had distracted Hugh Grant to give Holga the opportunity to throw the potato, them working together to resolve their common goal, essentially? Maybe. Maybe. But in the end... That's, but no, you know what? I don't know because I would have to see it and see how it was done. In the end though, Hulda was not set up for her relationship with Kira until very near the end of the movie, okay? From the beginning, the movie is Edgen saying to the parole board, I want to bring my wife back to life, I want to save my child, and I want to prove to her that I love her and that I am not a criminal. Okay? Which means by the end of the movie, Edgin must save his daughter, prove to her he is not a criminal, and save, revive his wife, or resolve those in some other way. Like, where 
he and his daughter, after they come together and, the, you know, the redemption, that conflict has been redeemed and he and Kira are having their hugging moment where she says, all I ever needed was you. And it's like, I'm sorry I wasn't there. You know, I was just trying to give us a better life. But, but you already give me a good life just by being here. And then that would have been great. And then him saying, well, I did get the to tablet of resurrection. And then her saying, you know, mom is gone. She can't come back. And she wouldn't want us to be stuck with her memory. And then Edgar would be like, yes, yeah, she did always tell me to move on. And then he just tosses the resurrection stone away. Like, that would have been okay, too. Because, again, all of the, all of the shit would be redeemed. I don't understand why Holga has to be involved in the rescuing of the child. Okay? That choice was to basically allow Holga to intrude on Edgin's motivation, okay? There's no reason for it. It was a choice from the beginning. She shouldn't have been, she could have helped as a friend, but again, it should have been Holga throwing the potato. That, like she throws the potato to distract Hugh Grant and then Edgin runs forward and smashes him over the head with the mandolin and grabs his daughter and carries them away and then says, everybody run. And then they're all running as he gets back up and yells, guards, guards, something like that. You know, he isn't, he shouldn't be the assistant. Okay. It is his conflict to resolve he needs to be the one to finish it. Other people can help. He has to finish it. He earned that. Okay? He, he paid a lot. Okay? That whole movie was a story about him suffering. Um, Halda's suffering was fairly minimal by comparison. She, she was living in exile, but this was briefly mentioned a couple of times. And she sort of really she did not give the sense that any of it really affected her. She did not pay with her emotions to earn that victory. You know what I mean? It didn't even seem to affect her that Kira was being raised by Forge. And in fact, at several points, she, she was trying to get Edgin to admit, well, you have to admit, Forge is raising her well, at least there's that. Which, if she cared as much as Edgin cared, is not something she could have said. Okay? But again, I feel like, uh, you know, I really don't want to get too much into defending my take. In the end, I told you what is important to me. I told you what I treasure and what I think are important virtues. And I told you what I saw, and I told you why it upset me. You know... Can we spec if they had done this, this, and this differently, would I have felt differently? I don't know. I would have to see that movie. That's not the movie they chose to write. In the end, the writers made choices. They chose to write this movie. Okay. Indigo is, this point came up earlier. Indigo, don't you think Holga's involvement was an attempt to touch on the found family trope? Do you find that to be an issue? Once again... The found family trope was brought up in text conversation earlier with some folks. I have nothing against the, the, found, the found family trope, okay? And in fact, I do value it. Once again, I do say I have an ideal of family in my head, okay? And I have good reason to believe that that's a good value to have. 
And, you know, I'm not going to go through the whole citation needed or anything like that. If you're really interested in this stuff, there's a huge body of research you can look into. There's also counterpoints. You can look into all of that. Okay. But I have no problem with any other form that family takes. I just, but it is important that we not also lose the ideal and understand why the ideal is the ideal. Okay. Ultimately, if, like, again, if this was a story, uh, okay. So let me give you an example of how we could touch on the found family trope and still do what we did. Okay. So Edgin rescues Kira. They have their moment of shouting. I was just trying to do it for you, but all I ever needed was you and you left me. I didn't mean to leave you. I was just trying to make us a family again. But mom's gone and we can't go back. Okay, I love you. I love you too. But fortunately, I have the resurrection tablet. Now we can bring your mom back to life. You know, and then we can be a family again. And then Kira looks around and says, don't you see? We have a family around us. And then the camera sweeps and there's Holga standing right behind Edgin and Simon standing back and the little druid standing there too, like looking sheepish. And then Simon, he nudges a little closer toward her and gives a look. And then Edgin realizes, you're right, we did. This is, you know, this is the family we've built and this is all we need. And then he secretly sneaks off and he uses the, 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 and he, he like buries the, the tome of resur the, the tablet of resurrection or something, whatever, right? Now you have the found family trope without also having to destroy the family values trope. Okay. It is, yes, we lost the family we had, but we built a different family instead. You know, that's that that would be an example of how to how to do it right. The problem is not the found family trope. I love the found family trope. OK, I love the idea that if life robs you of the thing you need, that you go and create it for yourself and that we can have many, many different ways of looking at family. OK, but. We don't need to destroy or insult the ideal to do that, okay? And that's, that's what I saw happening here, is that we are going to destroy the ideal to replace it, okay? In the end, Hulda, single white female, Edgin's story, his role, his relationship, he was pushed out of it in favor of Hulda. And that's really, like, she just took over. Um, and, you know, he was extraneous and unnecessary. So, anyway. All right, I don't know what else. Yeah, uh, I'll, uh, any more questions or comments? Because, Jesus, I've been going on for an hour and 40 minutes now. This has been very cathartic. Let me say this. I didn't really, I'm, while I'm saying this, feel free to type questions or add comments if you want to add them. Okay. The hardest part about this whole thing was not that I had, that I saw a movie that made me mad. Everybody sees movie that makes me mad. Okay. Um, everybody sees movies that they didn't like. Everybody sees movies they wish had been done differently. Everybody can see um, where movies could have been better. Okay. That is nothing special. That is nothing new. 
But sometimes you see a movie like this and you're thinking, why is it this way? Why is it so, why does it seem to be so mean spirited? And then you walk out and you discover you're the only one saying it. And you start to feel really screwed up. Like, why, why, what, what, did everybody see a different movie than me? What's wrong with me? Should I even be getting worked up about this? Or, you know, maybe I just can't even have fun anymore. And I can't talk about it because I'm going to ruin everybody's fun. And I don't want to do that. And also, what if I really am alone? You know, and what if I'm the only, I'm, I'm like some backwards idiot who thinks about things nobody cares about anymore. So being able to share this, and even if people disagree to at least say, wow, you know, your heart's in the right place. I don't agree with your take, and I don't even necessarily agree with your view on society and family, but man, at least I can see your heart's in the right place. You know, this is what I touched on very early or much earlier in the Discord chat about the inability to have these conversations, to share these ideas, because we're all so afraid that every one of these things is going to be political. You know, oh my God, I, I talked about family values and that I think that they serve society well and that I think there's something worth respecting. You know, now I am speaking politically and I must be castigated for it because we can't speak politically and we certainly can't speak politically and then disagree on the point. You know, there was a point earlier on where I was having a conversation with someone else in the Discord chat and they pointed out that their family upbringing and mine were somewhat different. And that as a result, the found family trope speaks to them very well. And then I was able to say, and I don't disagree one bit. I think that's beautiful and I'm happy that you found it. You know, and I know in some ways I was really, really lucky in that respect. I had some really, you know, my father and my uncle Gary, God rest his soul, were very good men. They worked hard for their families. I watched my father when I was young, though I didn't really realize it until later. He got laid off. He was out of work for a time. Um, my mother was working nights and taking care of me and my two sisters. But he was out of work for a while, and we were really struggling. And I didn't even know about that. They insulated me from knowing much about it. But watching my father kill himself to care for his, not literally kill himself, but figuratively kill himself, break his ass. Watching my father break his ass to take care of us um, and realizing that he would have driven himself into the ground to take care of us, it informed my view of what it means to be a good man. Because I know the same thing, you know, you know, with Tiny now and with our kids someday, if they're ever in danger, if they're ever confronted, if there is ever a problem, if we are ever in need, I will move heaven and earth to make it happen. I will take a bullet for them. And I know I have never been tested, but I have actually been in situations where I've been forced, forced to put myself in very serious danger for people I care about and also for strangers. I've never been a police officer or military man or anything else, and I have nothing but the deepest respect for people who do that stuff. And I don't think I could, but I have been in situations in my life where I have actually put myself in danger to protect other people. So I know I'm that kind of person. And I know that's because of my father's influence and because of my Uncle Gary's influence. My Uncle Gary was a farmer, a flower farmer, but he was a farmer nonetheless. So he was up every day with the dawn, working his ass off every day, taking damn good care of his family right up until the day he died way too early. Um, 
And, you know, and the funny thing is, this is the sad thing. We still, I still don't know what he passed of. I don't know if anybody in the family does. He didn't talk about it. He didn't, it was some kind of ongoing medical issue. He was, he did have type one diabetes, but it was under control. But they went off on a trip one day, my aunt and my uncle, and we got a phone call a few days into the trip that he had passed away. And nobody knew quite what it was. And we still don't because he didn't talk about it. Which, by the way, I'm not saying that's a good thing. And I don't know why I'm even opening up about this here. Okay. The point is I'm very lucky that I have had those examples of people in my life. And they made me a good person. Which is also why I think it's important to carry the torch for people like that. Because I want to be that person for my kids. And if I have a son, I want my son to grow up being that person for his kids. So that his sons grow up to be people like that for their kids. And of course, if I have a daughter, I want her to be a good woman. I want her to be a good person. I want her to embody good values too. This isn't just about fathers and sons. It just happens to be that in this particular movie, the theme of fatherhood was front and center. Okay? And that's my point. My point is that there, there was an ideal at the heart of this. And that ideal was basically stomped into the ground. And it is an ideal that I prize very highly and that I'm aware that I am very lucky that I have been taught through my whole life. Okay. Uh, let's see. So I did miss a question from Nanban Jim. And I think this is going to be, a, this is a good last question to end on because it's much less serious. So Nanban Jim asked, something you didn't touch on. What did you think of the visuals, practical and special effects, costuming, etc.? They were all right. Okay. I mean, like, like I said, again, you have to, they were perfectly middle of the road. They were, again, decent Marvel movies, special effects. Some of the costuming choices kind of confused me a little bit. Um, and like, uh, I'll give you an example. Like I didn't even realize at first that the druid was a tiefling because she was this pale skin freckled little thing and her, her horns could actually have been just a weird hat she was wearing. So like, I don't, I don't know. I, you know, like the, the, the costuming looked good. It, like, it looked like the art from a modern D&D book, which you can take or leave. Um, I thought some of, like, the... Let's see. Jonathan looked like... Jonathan was the Arakakra bird uh, parole officer. Um, he specifically looked very cartoony to me. That And the only reason I bring it up is because that stood out in my head as he looked really, really goofy. Um... The, the dragonborn or lizard person on the parole board was a little bit... I don't, I don't know. I, they, they were solidly okay. Um, they were in keeping with things. They didn't stand out to me. I guess that's it. Um, but then again, I'm much less interested in the visuals than I am in the plot. You, obviously, I am the sort of person who is going to deconstruct a plot to nothing. The half, well, the halflings look like shrunken people. Okay, they didn't look like anything. <laughs> I have to share this. Um, but 
Milicott just came just came in and said, I just finished the movie and I missed the first hour and 40 minutes of this talk. So basically everything but the last five minutes. But wow, did they just needlessly erase the role of father in the family. In my opinion, it wasn't about found family. It was rather about, I didn't know my birth mother and I liked the mother that raised me. I don't know if that destroyed the ideal, but it sure enforced the horrible stereotype of the father always being so far away, completely detached from the emotional life and only providing economically. The solely... The solely role of the father is mummy money, and the sole role of any mother is raising the child. Uh, yeah, go back and listen to the hour and 40 minutes you missed, but I now suddenly feel so much less alone. There's a lot of discussion about that and that particular conflict and how much better it could have been handled. Because in the end, that was half the reason why I was furious. <laughs> <laughs> but wow, did you just needlessly erase the role of the angry GM? <laughs> yeah, next time you can do this, Milicott. Right, that's a great note to end on. Okay. <sighs> anyway. <laughs> yeah, now, now every, not even Queasel. Okay, look. Real talk, this has gone on for a long time. Uh, I'm really glad to have been able to get this out. Um, you know, I realize that this is personal to me. Maybe some other people are going to feel this way. Maybe not. Maybe you walked away feeling like it was a good movie. I have no problem with whatever you think about it and whether you agree or not. If you had fun with the movie, I'm glad you did. I love it when people have a good time. If I didn't love that, I wouldn't be doing what I do. And that's why I really didn't even want to do this at all. But at the same time, I wouldn't have liked myself very much if I stayed quiet on this because there are important things to say whether you disagree or agree. And there are things I think a lot of people wanted and needed to hear. So thank you everyone for listening. Thank you for all your support. Um, and of course, thanks for the even-handedness. Uh, thanks also for not having a massive fight about this. Feel free to keep chatting about it, you know. Um, I'll, I'll, I, I don't even know what to say. I'm just going to babble now. So just feel free to keep chatting about it. I'll get the recording up in a few days. In the meanwhile, I do have um, a neat article coming, replacing the article I was supposed to write called Everyone Doing Everything All at Once. And I'm very proud of that title. So we'll, we'll see what happens from there. Anyways. Oh, and I will also be out of town for a couple of days this week. Um... The tiny, tiny, the tiny, tiny and I are heading out of town to visit her grandmother um, in a uh, in an elder care facility out of state um, just to catch up and stuff. Uh, a little bit of an emotional visit, but um, so I won't be around at the end of the week, but, you know. Uh, I'll be back next week and we'll be on schedule and we will be doing good. Now that I've gotten this out of my head, I don't have to think about it anymore ever. There goes the whole page of bullet points. Everyone have a great day.